Well, good morning, church family. Uh, it's good to be able to gather with you to worship Jesus together, to open up his, uh, his word that he's given to us. Uh, so thanks for bringing the church into whatever space you happen to be in uh, this morning, and thanks for inviting us into that space. And uh, we are just really um, honored and we're grateful uh, that we get to gather, obviously not in the, the way we would love to, uh, but we are thankful for the ability to be able to do this. And before I get actually into the message th- this morning, uh, I want to call your attention to something we're going to be doing next Sunday afternoon. We are going to have a town hall meeting uh, that'll be via Zoom from 4 to 5 p.m. So look for more information coming this week. An email will be sent out as well as a card at cpwp.life where you can get all the information. And here's the the hope with this. We realize things are slowly opening back up. There are things that we're even beginning to do as a church, like Eric made mention of with the driveway discipleship. But we also want to help answer some questions, kind of update you as to where we're at as we think through returning to in-person gatherings as far as the Sunday service goes, what we're anticipating as we're in constant communication, even with the YMCA, as they've slowly started opening back up, and just kind of where things are at. And even when we do go back, like what we anticipate that could look like, Obviously, there's a lot of variables. There's a lot of unknowns still, but we thought it would be good to take some time a week from today, so next Sunday, the 31st, for just an hour, and we'll run through what we know and things that we're thinking through, and then invite questions. There'll be space for that as well, and then we're going to take some time to pray together because we certainly need God's wisdom in all of this. Um, If you're sitting there and you've got all the answers, please come tell us. But my guess is you're like us, right? We're like, we're just trying to figure this out as we go along. And the Lord has told us like, hey, if any of you lacks wisdom to just go and to ask him. And so we've been doing that. We'll continue to do that. And we'll even have some time next Sunday sort of collectively uh, together on that, in that town hall meeting uh, to pray together and ask for the Lord's wisdom. And so Look for more information on that. Hopefully you will tune in. We'll record it as well if you can't happen to be there during that time. That way you can stay in the loop. So this morning, we continue our series through the great book of 2 Corinthians. So I wanna encourage you right now to get a Bible if you've got one or get your phone open, go to cpwp.life and swipe over till you see the message notes. We're gonna be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It's 18 verses uh, this morning. And so make sure you turn there. It'd be helpful to follow along as it's our practice to preach through books of the Bible, to go verse by verse. We want you to have it in front of you. You need to hear from from God, his word, and not my thoughts or opinions. And so we're just gonna try and faithfully work through this text. And normally I take time to kind of read through it all at once. It's a little longer section, and so a little longer passage. We're gonna take it kind of section by section uh, this morning. But I wanna encourage you to do this. Uh, Let's pray that the Lord would illuminate our hearts, our minds, our, our thinking that we might be open to what the Spirit has for us this morning as we look at this word that was penned a couple thousand years ago, but is as applicable uh, now as it was back then, and just praying and trusting that the Lord will work uh, through this time. So I'm going to put some words on the screen, and wherever you're at, I would encourage you just to, to pause for a moment, um, and that you would pray aloud these words with me, where we would ask the Lord to move in and through this time as his word gets taught and proclaimed. So let's pray together. Living God, Help us so to hear your word that we may truly understand and that understanding we may believe and believing we may follow your way in all faithfulness, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Amen. 
Well, that's our heart and prayer for this time. And as we get into this text, if you're new to Crosspoint, uh, then you might be new to even this book that we've been journeying through. And it's this letter that the Apostle Paul has written. He helped start a church in this kind of up and coming city called Corinth, but he's away from them now. He can't be with his people. It's an interesting thing to even be in a, a, one of the Paul's letters during this time where we as church leadership and staff, like we can't be with you all. And yet uh, Paul's using the medium of his day. So he's writing a letter. If he had live stream technology, he might've used that. He probably would have, right? Uh, but he had letters that he could write and to communicate his love for people, uh, what it looks like to be the church, dealing with challenges and questions and things. And I'll explain more of that, but just know Paul's heart, it's this pastoral heart that he's reaching out to these people. And where we find ourselves here in chapter 10 um, is on the heels, uh, kind of almost like this little mini series that Paul did on generosity and how to care for the church in other parts of the world that were suffering. And now he turns his attention to something that has been prevalent throughout the whole letter at this point, but it kind of comes more into focus as we get into the last, uh, you know, last few chapters here of this letter. And so chapter 10, Paul finds himself in a spot where he's gonna showcase for us what it looks like to be a leader that's been shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why that's so important is because he's dealing with criticisms and critiques and there are people that um, are unhappy with him. And there's this small little faction that's risen up and they've gotten very loud and um, it would have been like the bloggers are out in full force and they would have been commenting on social media sites and all that if that was their present day reality, if that had been the case. And Paul has gotten word of this and there's some that are stirring up dissension. And so Paul has to step in here and he's in this really awkward spot because on the one hand, he doesn't wanna sound like he's patting himself on the back and everybody listen to me. And yet he also knows there's actually a gospel issue at stake here because the things that they're trumpeting as ultimate and important and the things that they don't feel like Paul um, is qualified in actually speaks against like the, the truth of the gospel. They're really caught up in outward appearance and a lot of different things that we can kind of glean as we read through this, this letter. And Paul's like, that stuff's antithetical to the gospel. The gospel's not about this outward performance or how, how much charisma uh, one possesses or speaking ability or any of those things. Everything's gotta be centered on Jesus, all right? What well, Jesus is enough. And so I wanna ask us this question that this morning, um, and I think this text will help us wrestle through this, is what does gospel-shaped or Jesus-shaped leadership actually look like? And now, before you turn the live stream off, because maybe some of you are thinking, well, I'm not a leader. I don't have any sort of like leadership title. Let me put before you this reality. Every single one of us um, leads in some capacity because leadership is influence, all right? And so all of us to varying degrees, I get that there's a continuum, there's a spectrum here, but know this, like all of us have opportunities to lead. And in this pandemic, in the time that we find ourselves in, now we're all faced with trying to lead and have influence and to care and to love people like Jesus would. Um, when there's all kinds of disruption, all kinds of chaos and craziness, and we're wondering like, okay, where's the playbook for being a leader in this time? And we don't really seem to have one. And yet we can look back and we can see in this text, actually some really beautiful things that the Lord has given to us that will showcase for us like what gospel-shaped leadership looks like. And so I'm gonna read the first six verses here. And I want us to see how Paul starts out both his posture, but also the power that he has to be a leader. And my hope and encouragement for us is that, that we will be challenged, but we will also be uh, encouraged in following Paul as he follows Jesus. And we'll see that right away in verse one, and that we would be mindful of the power that we actually have. 
It's not a power that we have to kind of conjure up or, or try and create on our own, but rather it's this influence that we have because of God's work and God's power that's at work in us. So let me read this, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll read the first six verses. Paul says this, I, Paul, and he's getting very personal, right? Um, that even just the way he starts out, he's like, will you guys pay attention? This is a big deal. Like um, I, he says, I entreat you, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Verse three, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So as we get into this this morning, what is the Apostle Paul talking about here? Well, he starts out and he's gonna just talk posture for a moment. And so before we dive further into this, we gotta get really deep, very, very theological and philosophical here for a moment. And by that, I mean, we've gotta talk about the television show, The Office, okay? So big fan of that, uh, something I have enjoyed watching. If you're judging me right now, I'm sorry, but um, I know we've got some Office watchers out there. And there's always these cringeworthy moments. But one of the moments that stands out to me that I think is absolutely hilarious, but it's because it's just so just awful. You're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening right now. This cringe moment is this scene that occurs when Phyllis, all right, if you know her as one of the, the co-workers there in the office, um, she is going to get married. It's her big wedding day, all right? And she asks her boss, Michael Scott, in fact, she's strategizing because she wants some additional time off for her honeymoon. She says, hey, my father's in a wheelchair. He can't really walk me down the aisle. So will you push the wheelchair, all right, as I walk with my father? And so here's the, the scene as they're coming into the church and it's this beautiful moment and the music is playing and everybody's ooing and aahing, and, right? And everything is going according to plan. And if you know this scene, you know though, as they get about halfway down the aisle, the dad, Phyllis's dad, suddenly has this renewed vigor, this energy. He's like, I'm gonna, you know, I can't be in a wheelchair right now. And so he musters up every bit of strength that he has, all right, so that he can actually walk his daughter down the aisle. It would be this tremendous, amazing thing, right? Um, and everybody's like, oh, this is so special. I can't believe it. Everybody except for Michael Scott. Why? Because he was so enamored with this moment. He thought, this is my big moment. Like, how do I look? And he was making the whole thing about him. And so in the most hilarious, cringeworthy thing ever, you see him incredibly ticked off. And he's just, he's got this contempt for this old man now that's walking her, you know, his daughter down the aisle. And he feels like he's been upstaged. And we look at it and it's ridiculous. Like, why can't he just celebrate uh, with this, you know, this, this father and this daughter? But for Michael Scott in that moment, it was all about him. Now, I wish that I could say, hey, that's just kind of a comical kind of thing that's cringeworthy, but the reality is like, there's a lot of cringeworthy things in my life and in my heart, and if we're honest and we allow the scriptures to examine us this morning, instead of sitting afar, maybe judging it, but we actually use it and realize it's kind of this mirror and it's reflecting back to us like, oh, like that's who I am oftentimes. And so, what we realize is right out of the gate, the apostle Paul says, I entreat you by what? By the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 
if he's going to talk to these opponents of his, these people that are critiquing him, if he's got to step in in a leadership way, Paul's not doing it with sort of the bravado. He's not doing it according to just like the, the latest leadership book that's been written, but he's looking to the ultimate leader, that's Christ. And he says, well, how did Jesus operate? What was Jesus like? And Jesus operated with a meekness and a gentleness. Now, we don't tend to think meek and gentle as the words for leadership, but the Bible certainly does. And it would serve us well to embrace that meekness should not be equated with weakness at all. In fact, there's a great strength in actually being able to be meek because meekness speaks to, I don't actually have to be the centerpiece. I don't have to be the story. I don't have to have everything revolve around me. I want to read you this quote. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it gets to the heart so that we understand, if nothing else in this, just verse one would be hugely important for us this morning, that we might operate with a meekness and a gentleness, because that is how Christ has operated toward us. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote these words in regards to meekness. He says this, the man who is meek is not even sensitive about himself. He is not always watching himself in his own interest. He is not always on the defensive. We all know about this, do we? do we not? Is it not one of the greatest curses in life as a result of the fall, this sensitivity about self? We spend the whole of our lives watching ourselves, but when a man becomes meek, he is finished with all that. He no longer worries about himself and what other people say. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see there is nothing worth defending. So we are not on the defensive and all of that is gone. What a beautiful picture there of meekness. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones continues and he says this. He says, the man who is truly meek never pities himself. He is never sorry for himself. He never talks to himself and says, you are having a hard time. How unkind these people are not to understand you. He never thinks how wonderful I really am. If only other people gave me a chance, self-pity. What hours and years we waste in this. But the man who has become meek has finished with all that. To be meek, in other words, means that you have finished with yourself altogether and you come to see you have no rights or desert at all. Now, what would it look like for us as a church to get to that place? I think we would be the kinds of leaders and influencers that the Lord has called us to be because we wouldn't be making it about us. We wouldn't make the story about us. We wouldn't be calling attention to ourselves in a Michael Scott sort of way, but rather we would see what Paul is talking about here that he knows to enter into this. He's got to remind himself of Jesus who was the embodiment of meekness, never made it about him, made it about the Father's will to the point that it took him to death on a cross. I mean, this is what First Peter speaks of in chapter two, verses 21 to 24. Look at this description. This is meekness and gentleness embodied. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
Jesus's meekness and his gentleness actually brings us the strength that we need to lead in the way that the Lord has called us to lead in general, but even in particular in this moment that we find ourselves in. Now let's continue as we look at verses two to six. What comes up is flowing out of meekness and gentleness. Paul begins to speak then of also like war and warfare and weapons, and it suddenly turns like very violent, and he talks about strongholds and destroying things, and it's like, okay, what is going on? And, and some of you are watching you know, this, you're like, oh, I, I don't know what to do with that. Some of you are like, yeah, I love that kind of stuff. And you're don't, you know, wherever you are on that continuum, we got to ask, like, what is he talking about here? So as we look back over verses two to six, actually, even at the end of verse one, Paul says, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. Apparently what he's become aware of is what people were saying behind his back. That there were some that were like, oh, the Apostle Paul, he's super bold when he's, when he's writing stuff, but like face-to-face, he's weak, he's nothing, he's got no power, he's got no influence, we can just disregard him. And so then Paul starts speaking of a number of things, and they all, one of the recurring words or phrases is the flesh, all right? He says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence, as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh, that there were some that were calling into question the Apostle Paul's integrity and just his ministry and his apostleship and all of that. And he's like, I don't want to have to come with this, with this boldness. I don't, I don't want to have to get into this with you all. Like, will you listen? Will you pay attention? Will you remember Jesus, his meekness? Will you remember the gospel? In verse three, Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, verse four, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And so even in this, we kind of hear these phrases or these words. He's talking about walking in the flesh. We don't wage war in the flesh or use weapons of the flesh. So what does he mean by that? Well, for one, Paul says, we walk in the flesh. Okay, does that mean he's walking in a, like a worldly and a sinful way? Because sometimes flesh can be translated or can mean that. No, what Paul is saying is like, listen, I... I'm, a flesh, I'm in flesh and blood like you all. Like I live in the real world. I know the difficulties and the challenges. I'm not like immune to this. I'm not some sort of follower of Jesus that just hovers at this kind of spiritual plane. It doesn't get into just the real difficulties of life. He's like, no, like I'm right there with you. Like I walk in the flesh. I'm flesh and blood just like you all. But he says, here's the difference. He says, all right, we are not though, talking about him and his like disciples and the people that are with him, we're not waging war according to the flesh. So he's saying the way we operate, it is different though than the ways of the world. And he even says, then the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So in his meekness and his gentleness, it doesn't mean the apostle Paul is passive, but rather he's like, no, no, there's battle to be done. That's why he's actually writing to this group of people because there's some things in here that don't align themselves with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, listen, pay attention to this. Kent Hughes talked about it this way in his commentary. He says, Paul, so we talk about weapons and warfare. He says, Paul is not contrasting his weapons with spears and missiles, he says but with the conventional weapons of his opponents. Okay, so what were those? Ingenuity, rhetoric, showmanship, splashiness, spiritual pretension, personal charisma, the kind of things Paul disavows. And because Paul avoids these things, they think he is inferior and they despise him. But no matter, Paul's weapons nevertheless have divine power. So 
The big idea, I think, in all of this is to recognize Paul is speaking of, hey, there's a way that the world does leadership. There's a way that the world sort of says, hey, this is what it looks like to lead and to have strength. And, and what Kent Hughes said there is, is true. And you could build on that list, spiritual pretension, personal charisma, splashiness. Like, if we think for a moment that that was an issue a couple thousand years ago and doesn't affect us, like, we would be gravely mistaken. It's all over the place. Even for us, sometimes what we think about like finding a church to connect with, like we want to know, like there's something within us that's like, ooh, I gravitate towards this person or this person has charisma or style or they do things in a way that's sort of flashy or it's got this amount of energy or, or whatever. And Paul's like, listen, those are not the things that ultimately matter most. Paul has this confidence. And so if we're gonna lead well in this time and in the days ahead, we have to be resting in we're the actual source of powers. And so Paul comes in, he's like, yeah, I'm coming in and there's some things, some strongholds. He says, there's some of you that, you know, you're raising a lofty opinions raised, this is verse five, against the knowledge of God. Paul's like, I need to correct some of this thinking. Like we're talking about things of utmost importance, but the posture of Paul, again, is meek and gentle and he doesn't think the strength and power is in himself. In fact, in his first letter to the Corinthians, I wanna read to you a couple verses out of 1 Corinthians chapter two. Here's Paul's description when he first showed up in flesh and blood and began talking about Jesus when he began ministering to this church. It wasn't flashy. It didn't come with a lot of buzz and hype and you know, a lot of, there wasn't a lot of, you know, he wasn't trending on Twitter as he arrived into Corinth. Right? No one knew who this guy was or what in the world was happening, but there was something winsome about what he was saying. Not because Paul was this amazing orator, not because he had this physical presence that could just gather a crowd, all right? But because of the content of what he was saying. And so 1 Corinthians 2, Paul describes his entry into Corinth. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in what? In the power of God. Church, if you've ever found yourself wondering like, man, am I just a terrible evangelist and you feel nervous or apprehensive or your, your knees are shaking and kind of knocking a bit, you're in good company. That's the apostle Paul. And what he's saying is, I came, there's weakness and trembling, but I'm gonna proclaim the truth of who Jesus is about his life, death, his resurrection, how his wounds have made healing possible for us that we might be reunited with our God, experience in the presence of God that we were created for. And Paul says, the power is in the message of the gospel and the Holy Spirit working through us as broken, sinful people. It's not in our rhetoric and our ability or how impressive we look. And I find that incredibly comforting. We wanna lead well. Remember where the power is, it's not in you. And that doesn't mean when you lead this week and your particular, maybe your job isn't, most of you don't work in a church context or ministry context in that sort of vocational sense. So does this mean like you gotta go in preaching the gospel when you go to your office or you're working remotely or you hop on the Zoom call and it's like, why is this dude doing a devotion at the start of every Zoom call that I'm on? I don't think that's what the apostle Paul, he's saying if there's opportunities, certainly, but there's a way that you can go about your work where you yourself are resting in this quote, foolishness of the gospel. You've got nothing to prove. You literally have nothing to prove. That's where this whole chapter is going. 
what if we rested in the finished work of Jesus? How might we just lead? We would be this sort of non-anxious presence in the world for the good of people. And then Paul says this as we, as he kind of wraps up this section. So he says, we destroy arguments, every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God. And then this line, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. So Paul's willing to step in. He's willing to bring some discipline where it's needed. But when your obedience is complete, like at the end of the day, he's wanting to see people be obedient to Christ. And he says, take every thought captive. Such a beautiful and kind of loaded phrase there that we could literally spend an entire sermon, if not more, just sort of unpacking that. But let me just put something before you that I think is a helpful framework here that's been helpful to me um, about like, what does that actually mean to take every thought captive? What Paul is recognizing is this, like you and I, as he said, like, hey, we live in this world of flesh and blood. Like we walk according to the flesh in some ways, meaning like there's just real challenges in this world and there's lots of things for us to navigate. And so there's, there's things that um, I kind of wish I could go and find an exact verse. Oh, that tells me exactly how to handle things. We got to walk with discernment. Wisdom, part of being a leader is to actually have discernment and have wisdom. And so what does it mean to take every thought captive? And so a helpful sort of framework, um, I think would be worth just capturing this, writing it down, remembering it. All right, this is not original to me, um, but it's something I do find helpful that's been taught over the years is that when things come up, you kind of have three choices. There's kind of three buckets to put things in. You can either receive this thing, you can reject this thought idea, or you can work towards seeing it redeemed. So receive, reject, redeem. Let me just give you a couple quick examples and then we got to move on, all right? To take every thought captive. There are some things that you and I can just receive that are just part of God's common grace out in the world, all right? You can receive technology, all right? Is technology sometimes used for Horrible things? Yes. Is the internet used for some horrible things? Yes. You know what? The internet is also being used right now for proclamation of God's word. And so we can receive this. We can understand like this is a good gift that the Lord has given to us to receive. There's good food to be enjoyed. All all of that, right? So you just got to ask yourself, is this something that I can receive just in common grace? At the same time, there are thoughts, there are ideas, there are things that are contrary to the gospel, and we must reject those things. And there's a certain boldness. We have to have a confidence in who we are to actually step into that. I think that's our cultural moment we live in too, that increasingly there are things that ideas that the church holds to be true, that the Bible teaches, that Jesus himself taught, that other people would say are ridiculous. So we need to reject thinking or ideas or things that would, would go against you know, the knowledge of God. Things that would say, oh, there's multiple ways to have, um, to actually worship God or to um, have salvation. As a church, as Christians, we reject that idea. It doesn't line up with, with the scriptures. How the Bible speaks of a sexual ethic that would honor God. There's a way that the world talks about that that must be rejected, all right? We must reject drunkenness or illegal drug use. We must reject adultery, all these things. And yet increasingly in the world, there's like, hey, just come on, you do you, just be true to yourself. Well, that is stuff to be rejected. And then probably the biggest category are just things to be redeemed. Meaning we recognize that there are good gifts from the Lord that ultimately we wanna see more embrace and kind of come under the lordship of Christ. And so how we think about technology, how we think about entertainment, how we think about food and exercise, how all of those things, relationships, sex, all of it, what does it look like to be the church in a redeemed way? That's taking every thought captive. I mean, one of the most prominent things that was happening in Paul's day was that 
They were under the rule and reign. The people were that world at the time under Caesar and the declaration everywhere the Romans went, you had to bow the knee and say, Caesar is Lord. And so that phrase was taken, it was sort of co-opted by the church. And it's not Caesar that's Lord, it's Jesus is Lord. Like even redeeming that phrase and saying, let me rightly direct our worship and our awe to where it ultimately belongs. And so Paul is saying, let's engage in this so that there would be obedience. Now, look with me at verses seven through 11 as we move through this. Paul says, okay, if we're gonna lead well, what's the ultimate purpose? And there's a lot more detail in these verses, but I wanna call your attention really to, to one phrase. I think it's sort of the big idea that we see in seven through 11. Paul says, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Verse nine, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say, and here's some of the word on the street about Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. All right, what every pastor wants to hear, right? In verse 11, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we actually do when present. Paul's like, there's, no, there's, you're wrong now. He's like, there's an integrity about like what I write and what I say in person. He's like, it's the same. And Paul's willing to enter into the hard conversations, the difficulty, even what's happening here to this church in Corinth and to this group that is kind of raising all of the, these issues. It's out of love that Paul is stepping in. And so if we're gonna have the meekness and gentleness of Jesus, it doesn't mean we hit the eject button and get passive, but rather that we would enter in. And so Paul says it there, it's sort of summed up. I don't know if you caught this phrase. He said, I've been given some authority for what? For building you up and not for destroying you. That's the purpose. Our leadership, any influence that we've been given, all right, is for the building up of others. And so ask yourself, how are you using your authority? We've been looking over the past three weeks, we looked at stewardship of money. We also have to steward our influence, the authority, some of it's positional authority, and some of it is just influence that you and I have, relationships that you have, people that might ask you questions. It's not lording it over people, but rather, are we stepping in and are we serving? Is there a servant leadership? How are you using your authority? What does that look like? Are you building others up? So the big thing in our household this past week, if you follow me on social media, you probably saw uh, some posts about this, uh, but our older daughter, um, our oldest in, in our family, um, she got her driver's license this week, all right? Um, and so she went and she took her test, and so she had had her learner's permit for over a year. And what happened in those 12 months? There was lots of building up. There was lots of instruction. There was lots of correction, all right? Because what? When she started out, it's very simple. She didn't know how to drive. And so we had to be with her and coach her and talk with her. And admittedly, sometimes she was like, I wanna go with mom because dad, you stress me out. And so we had all that, that sort of stuff, right? And even in the hours before, like the night before she was going to take her test, her and I were over in this, this school parking lot, you know, practicing all the things that they might have her do. What was it for? Was it to beat her down? Was it to discourage her going in? No, it was like an attempt to like build up, to instruct. That's what Paul is doing. He's using his authority to instruct. And so how is it with you? 
In fact, this phrase build up has sort of Old Testament implications. There's this great passage in the book of Jeremiah and it gets at this idea that the Lord has made a covenant commitment with his people that though there's gonna be hardship at times, he ultimately is going to build them up. This is how the Lord uses his authority. And so we want to follow after him. Okay, so what does it look like to use our influence and authority? Jeremiah 31 verse 28 says this, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, some hard words there, he says this, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. The Lord's heart toward his people, the commitment that he's made is that he might see us flourish, to be built up, that he's with us, he has not abandoned us in difficulty. So what does it look like to faithfully follow after him? Now, in all of this, here's what we'll close. If that's the purpose, all right, and we've got to have this posture and we have this power that the Lord has given and we want to serve other people, we want to build them up, we want to do that for God's glory and for the good of other people. We've talked about this already, but Paul, where he ends here in these closing verses, I think is this great reminder that I so often forget who I am in Christ. I forget what God has done for me in Christ. I have this tendency to think I still got to prove that there's, I pay attention too much to the critics and to the criticism. I, I think of myself like in comparison to other people. And Paul speaks very directly of these things. And he wants to remind us as he's reminding himself, when we talk about preaching the gospel to yourself, this I think is what's happening here for the apostle Paul. So look with me at verses 12 to 18, as we close with this last section, Paul talks about our position in Christ. And so he says these words, Picking up in verse 12, he says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. It's like, we don't want to play that game. All right, verse 13, but we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. So he's like, hey, Corinthians, like I was used by God I don't have a big ego about that, but I'm not gonna deny God's work, all right? And so he's like, hey, I recognize how the Lord has used me, verse 13, verse 14 now, for we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. So Paul's not talking about some sort of false humility where somebody thanks you and you're like, you know, you just can't even accept a compliment or anything, or maybe you get dismissive and you're like, oh, it was all the Lord. Well, if it was all the Lord, it probably would have been better than what we were able to do, right? And so he doesn't play those sort of things. He's like, hey, I accept that the Lord has used me. Verse 15, we do not boast beyond the limits, limit in the labor of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, verse 16, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another area, another's area of influence. Now look how he ends in verse 17, 18. Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. There is something in the human heart, no matter how much level of quote unquote, success you and I achieve in the world. There's an insecurity. There's a need for approval. There's this quote from several years ago. This woman who spoke these words, incredibly successful, Ellen DeGeneres, right? She is the show. She's popular. You watch people, you know, always passing along her YouTube clips, all of these things. Look how she spoke of just 
this insatiable need to get the approval of others. She said, I also, so she's kind of making this resolution. I also decided to get rid of the need of approval. That is a strong addiction, the need of approval, isn't it? She says, I'm on the patch right now, actually. It releases small doses of approval until I no longer crave it, and I'm going to rip it off. What do you see? Some aspirational hopes, but she recognizes something about the human condition that no matter how much success you have, no matter how much influence you have, there's this tendency. We still compare. We still listen to the critics. We still can get down on ourselves and and lose sight of what God has called us to. And so the apostle Paul, what he's speaking of here, I think a way to talk about it would be this deadly trap. And the trap is this, that you have to carve out your identity. That is the world's narrative right now. And Jesus wants to free you from it. You don't achieve an identity, you receive an identity. And so we wanna see this movement, this freedom from critiques and comparison. When I pay too much attention to the critiques, it's like I'm so desperate for the approval of other people. But what if we realize we have all the approval we need because of the finished work of Jesus? And when there's comparison, what is that? That's a way to sort of puff ourselves up, maybe in response to the critiques and we get into this game, like, well, I'm better than this person or I have more gifts than this person or I do that a little bit better. And what we need to realize, to be freed from comparison is to realize we actually have nothing to offer. Everything we even have, the good things are a gift from the Lord. And even that we've tainted with our own sin and our own rebellion. I literally bring nothing to the table, all right, but my sin and my rebellion against God. Like I don't actually have anything worth being like, ooh, look at this look what I've contributed. Like we shouldn't play those sort of silly, nonsensical games of comparison because what do I actually have to bring? Everything is dependent upon the grace of God. And so church, let me encourage us in this as we close. What Paul is doing when he says, all right, let those who boast, let's boast in the Lord. Is that your boasting right now? And he says, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. The only way you and I get the commendation of the Lord is when we've accepted the free gift of salvation, when we get Jesus's righteousness, when we trust in him, he took all of our sin, he took the wrath of God, it was poured out on him instead of on me. This transfer takes place. And so the beautiful good news of the gospel, we gotta define what it's not and then what it actually is. The gospel is not conditional love. Some of you are operating with that mindset. When we pay too much attention to critique and to comparison, when we play those games, we think it's conditional, it's not. The mindset is, should never be, if you obey me, I will love you. You and I can never do enough good things, never have enough obedience for the Lord to love us because we can't be perfectly obedient. So then sometimes it swings to the opposite end of the spectrum. The gospel though, it is not unconditional love. That is a very popular phrase. It's a very popular sentiment. We look at that and think, oh yeah, that sounds more gospel. But it really is saying, well, I love and accept you just the way that you are. The gospel is so much better than that. Here's how we have to think about it. The gospel is not conditional love and it's not unconditional love. The gospel is contra-conditional love. It means this, that every condition, like on my own, right? I don't deserve the love of God. I deserve wrath. I deserve punishment. I deserve separation from God. And yet God goes against all of those things by his son taking what I deserve and gives me his righteousness. That is contra-conditional love, that Jesus meets all the conditions. I can't possibly meet them. So me trying to play the comparison game, I'm just comparing myself to one other jacked up sinner. Like it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Woohoo, I'm slightly better than this person. I'm slightly worse. Who cares? It's God and his holiness that we compare ourselves to. We realize we don't measure up, but Jesus gives us his righteousness. 
David Paulison spoke of it this way. He says, God has blessed me because his son fulfilled the conditions I could never achieve. Contrary to what I deserve, he loves me. And now I can begin to change, not because I can earn his love, but because I've already received it. So church, I wanna pray for us. I wanna give us a time just as we continue to, in this time of worship as well, be reflecting on this. Are you boasting in the Lord's commendation? That's where your identity is found. And so let's take a moment as I pray, ask the spirit to bring things to mind. What do you need to repent of? And then ask the spirit to remind you of who you are in Christ, the, the identity that you have received, the contra-conditional love that God has for you. And then we're gonna rejoice. And we're gonna rejoice by singing, by closing out our time in a couple of songs. But it's not just rejoicing here on this live stream. Let's rejoice throughout the week, remembering God, his faithfulness, his promises that he is building us up in Christ right here and right now. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. And God, I thank you that despite the difficulty of what the apostle Paul had to endure, I thank you for what he showcases for us about what it looks like to, to lead and to love and to move forward, remembering who we are in Christ, that that's what empowers us, that the gospel message is what we move forward in, that the gospel is what we need in order to, to lead well and to love well. And so God, would you be with us as a church? You have called us to be the church in this time, in this place. Every single person watching this live stream right now, God, you determined that they would be living during this time and not only living during this time, but leading and loving during this time of a global pandemic. This is not by accident that you are raising up your church to be this faithful witness of of who you are and of your love, your generosity toward us. And so, God, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would empower us. God, I pray that you would get your glory and that we would experience a deep and abiding joy as we worship you now and as we worship you with all of our lives. Receive our praise now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.